Often when I um, come to a, a part of the Bible that is hard for me, I, I, almost, I, I, don't know, I don't know what the right response is, but it, it's strange that I know in my head that the very intention of the passage was often the opposite of what I am experiencing. And this is one of those passages. The, the sort of the, the context of it is Jesus is less than 24 hours from the cross. He is cramming into the, the 12 disciples' souls and, and by proxy into our souls the passion that he wants to leave. The, I, I can hear his tone. I, I know in my head his tone is... is it's just filled with, with a gentleness and, and, a, and, a, and a tenderness for the ones that he loves. This passage is fairly famous, and for most of my Christian life, as I have either heard it preached or I have read it myself, I will confess it's created anxiety for me. As I've read it, I, I've thought, crap, I am not doing this right. So that lovely opening, we're going to read the passage. <laughs> I'll just let you squirm yourself. Um, if you're new to the scriptures, good for you. <laughs> you get a fresh start. <laughs> like, hopefully you can begin listening in a way that I think Jesus actually intended without the filter of our own noise. This is John chapter 15. I am the true vine, and my Father is the vine dresser. Every branch in me that does not bear fruit, he takes away, and every branch that does bear fruit, he prunes, that it may bear more fruit. Already you are clean because of the word that I have spoken to you. Now abide in me, and I in you. As the branch cannot bear fruit by itself unless it abides in the vine, neither can you, unless you abide in me. I am the vine, and you are the branches. Whoever abides in me, and I in him, he it is that bears much fruit. For apart from me, you can do nothing. If anyone does not abide in me, he is thrown away like a branch and withers, and the branches are gathered, thrown into the fire, and burned. If you abide in me, and my words abide in you, Ask whatever you wish, and it will be done for you. But this, by this is my Father glorified that you bear much fruit, and so prove to be my disciples. As the Father has loved me, so have I loved you. Abide in my love. If you keep my commandments, you will abide in my love, just as I have kept my Father's commands, commandments and abide in his love. These things I have spoken to you, that my joy may be in you, and that your joy may be full. This is my commandment, that you love one another as I have loved you. Greater love has no one than this, that someone lay down his life for his friends. And you are my friends if you do what I command you. No longer do I call you servants, for the servant doesn't know what his master is doing, but I've called you friends. For all that I've heard from my father, I've made known to you. You didn't choose me, but I chose you and appointed you that you should go and bear fruit and that your fruit should abide, so that whatever you ask the Father in my name, he may give it to you. These things I command you, so that you will love one another. 
Je le sien. Je prends un petit paquet de levure, s'il vous plaît. C'est pour mademoiselle Amélie Ouais. Hein C'est sûr qu'un vomitant de son fameux Kunyaman. Falignon Hop Allez chercher les deux. Anomaly, the clip, for me, captures pretty close what we call the gospel, the good news. I, I, I remember a therapist telling me once, Carl, let me, let me show you your life. This is you. Come closer, come closer. Stay away, stay away. Amelie in the movie, if you, maybe you couldn't read the subtitles, but her fantasy of the one that she loves, the longing she has, that, that, that he would come. But then when he does come, she's terrified. If, if we're going to sort of grasp this passage, we're, we're going to have to, to rethink and, and, and look at some concepts, look at some ideas that we hold. One of those, for lack of a better word, I, I, I ask this question, what, what is the energy of faith? It's, what is abide? If spirituality were viewed as some sort of energy or, 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 or some sort of effort, how, how does that play into this story of abiding or as Amelie showed it? I can ask it this way. What did Amelie need to do to experience the, the love that she longed for? You can say it out loud. She needed to open the door. Yeah, we're... Nobody wants to ever say something out loud and be wrong, so I try to set the bar as low as I can, and I think we all got that one. I, I, I'm going to have to adjust the film clip. I, I think it's really good. It's, it's so close. All, all of us, or many of us, have, have heard for so long that all we need to do is open the door for Jesus to come in. I, I want to tweak it just a bit. If I could replay the story, I would replay it exactly the same. The only difference is that I would, I would picture Amelie holding the door. 
You see, I believe that, that, that the energy of the, of, the, of the spirituality of humans is actually in unbelief. That unbelief is the resistance of the door. That God has never turned his back on it. Jesus has always pursued us. He's always pushing, I think, for lack of a better metaphor, for the door to open. And it is our, our effort is keeping the door closed. I think to better understand this verse is to understand spiritual energy <laughs> as the anti-energy, as the surrender of something, the stopping of the resistance. Lack of better way to say it, you can't abide. What you can do is stop running. You see, when I've heard this passage or I've heard it preached, there was a, a, a list of things that came with how I could abide and how I wasn't abiding quite right. I, I wasn't reading my scriptures or I wasn't praying. I wasn't doing something that was equated with abiding. It's hard for us to picture, and I can't speak it into existence adequately, but there's something about the surrender that I see all through the scriptures and especially in this tender story where I stop and I surrender. Now, one of the better pictures I know of in the, the Bible, and again, if you're, I, I don't have time for us to go there, but is the Mary and Martha story. You're familiar perhaps with that story. Two of Jesus' very best friends, two women who had been with Jesus in some ways were well in front of their understanding of who Jesus was, in front of even, I believe, some of the disciples' understanding. These two sisters, and Jesus one day, you know, sort of a after-synagogue potluck or something, comes by the house. And we have this picture of, of Mary, who is doing nothing. She is sitting at Jesus' feet. And Martha is, is busy fixing dinner for Jesus. It isn't that what Martha did was wrong, but it is why Martha did what she did that Jesus sort of calls out. Martha believed that Jesus needed her effort. And Mary knew that it was the ceasing of effort that Jesus wanted. I, um, I, I like that in the Amelie clip, I, I like how that cat shows up because one of my very favorite stories of somebody capturing sort of the conversion is in Annie Lamott's book, Traveling Mercies. I don't know if you've read that. It's a, it's a marvelous little book. And it's a, it's a bit of a crude story how she describes her own conversion, but she describes the Holy Spirit or the presence of God as this cat that keeps showing up in an... It just won't go away. The cat's always sort of at the door, she describes it. 
And, and she's resisting the cat. The cat is, is waiting for this invitation. And finally, in, with an epitaph that sounds like a fire truck, she says, oh, fire truck, it. Just come in. In other words, she describes her, her conversion as when she quit trying to keep the cat out. And she surrendered. Abide is, is this, with all that I have, I stop running. I can't make myself abide. All I can do is not run away. One of the ways that I've begun to reread this is to rethink of my spiritual energy as it relates to abiding. The other is I, I've kind of had to rethink what is the background of this story? What is, what is non-abiding or what is what we might call sin? I sometimes say sin like in kind of sort of an air quote way because not that I'm afraid of the word, but I, I'm afraid of how it's heard. I'm, I'm afraid that it is often uh, communicated as a, a moral failure, as quite honestly as people not trying hard enough. That's not how I think the, the story of the scriptures lay out. I don't think non-abiding is people not trying hard enough. But, but it's... It, there, there's something about, in my own story, that I connect with, and that is this, the story of, of addiction. Now, I'll, I, I, I maybe sometimes have talked too much about it, because my own sobriety story is, is seven years long, and, and, but it, it's a way I, I understand non-abiding. And, and what's at play for me? And I'll also own that, as maybe I've shared with you before, I, I think everybody is an addict. So I'll just own that. I think that's what it means to be human, is to have a propensity towards something that relieves my anxiety and my loneliness. You see, I think at the core of our story is loneliness. What's interesting about loneliness is loneliness is not a result of our rebellion against God. Loneliness is the result of being made in the image of God. You don't experience loneliness because you have said no to God. You experience loneliness because you are the unique in all of creation who has been made in his image and God means togetherness. God is, is the inexplicable trinity of the Father and the Son and the Holy Spirit, forever connected. And out of that, you were birthed. Let us make people in our image. Let us make them somehow interconnected. Sin, I believe, air quotes, is the management of our loneliness. Like Amelie, we have this 
deep, inexplicable need to connect. Connect with God, to abide. That is, that is in us. Our management of that is our addictions. Maybe you're familiar with the rat study. The rat study, if you can think back into the 80s during the sort of the war on drugs and the just say no, there was a time when it was part of a popular commercial that was intended to help us just say no. And in the study that was sort of captured in a, in a commercial and, and became popular was, the, was this rat study where they put a rat into a cage and gave the, cat, the, the rat two options, a, a water option and a water with heroin option. Almost all the rats, 90% of the rats, would, once they tasted the heroin option, would continue to return to the heroin option until it killed them. And so the, the popular tagline became, don't be like a rat, don't kill yourself. What's interesting is another study was done by a Canadian sociologist, I think his name was Alexander. And he made a, an interesting observation and that was that every time the study was reproduced, it was reproduced with rats alone in sort of terrible circumstances, all by themselves in a solitary cage. So he recreated the same experiment, but he made a rat paradise park. So he created cages that had everything a rat might want. Good food, fun little wheels, things to do, and lots of other rats. In the rat paradise park experiment, the addiction rate dropped from 90% to 20%. And even the addicted rats, however, did not, um, did not kill themselves with their addiction. They had zero fatalities. In the isolated rat experiment, 90% became addicted, and of those who became addicted, of those rats, 100% did it to death. His observation, I think, is keen, that, the, that at the core of our addiction issue is managing our loneliness. That resonates with me. I, um, I remember early in my sobriety when I was in recovery, the, the therapist, the, the person who was sort of facilitating our group said, I want you to remember this. Your addiction wants to get you alone and kill you. Your addiction wants to get you alone and kill you. And how did my addiction get me alone? My addiction promised me every day, I'll be your friend. I created this ritual of about 3.30 in the afternoon because I could manage my own schedule. I would go sit in, usually in the backyard if it was nice weather and I would have a, a few drinks and I... I, I, I would, in the midst of doing my pastoral work, I would sometimes be dreaming about, the, like, 
I can, I can handle the conflict, I can handle the difficulty of this because pretty soon I'm gonna be with my friend. And my friend is gonna make me feel warm and comforted. My, my friend, my friend doesn't ask anything of me. I, I, I get to just be me, I can be totally relaxed. Early in, in whatever addiction you might be experiencing, the, the feeling of being safe, of making everything else go away, is amazing. The problem with addictions, or the problem is I often correlate them with idols. You see, I think it was the only time in my life I understood the Bible story of false gods was when I understood my own addiction because this false god, it, it looks so much like God. It was saying the same things. I will love you. I will be there for you. I will comfort you. I will make you safe. And then it did none of that. It was all empty. And I ended up with headaches and hangovers and I was beginning to fracture every relationship in my life. Because my addiction was wanting me to be alone so it could kill me. If I can, I want you to try not to think of the most drastic addictions possible. You may be struggling with, with chemical kinds of addictions, drugs and alcohol, but honestly, anything that God put into the garden can become an addiction. Anything that God created can become the thing that we begin to worship. Workaholism or, heck, Facebook. Anything that can, can begin to promise, I will manage your loneliness. We were created for connection. I've wondered because I just experienced it this week. My wife travels quite a bit. And I've always wondered, and when she does, I don't sleep very well. I have a hard time going to sleep, and I wake up a lot at night. But when April is home, she'd been gone for a week, and then she came home, and I, the best two nights sleep I've had were the last couple nights when, when she was, and I don't understand why, because frankly, if, if, if something were to happen, the last person you want is April. Like, I, I, I don't mean that. I mean, this is just how she is. She doesn't do well in a crisis. If, if something were happening, if there was a burglar or the house was burning, she's a detriment, not an asset. She, she's not going to be able to do one thing to help me. And here's the funny thing is, she sleeps better when she gets home and I'm, because she has this illusion that I'm going to be helpful to her. I, I, and I'm not. You see, I'm just as afraid and neurotic as she is. I was remembering as I was putting this together, I was remembering this experience I had. I was in Africa, and I was, at a, I was pretty high up at about 8,000 feet looking over the Rift Valley, and, and the compound I was staying at uh, was surrounded by, uh, by fence, mostly for keep bad people out, but also baboons. Baboons were everywhere, and the baboons were really aggressive. And then there were, there were, there were creatures that I was unfamiliar with everywhere, little new kinds of 
things that in my imagination can kill you. And so <laughs> I, I'm, on a, I'm on this walk and I'm, of course, alone on this walk. And um, when suddenly into the back of my collar drops one of these creatures. I, I am unable to reproduce either the decibel or the octave level of that, <laughs> of that shriek. I'm not a sexist, I'm a feminist, and I'm, but it, it sounded like an eight-year-old girl. <laughs> and I hysterically begin flailing my body until I finally was able to kill the leaf which had dropped. <laughs> you, you, you see, anxiety is not necessarily provoked by something real. It often is really provoked by our imagination. But what's interesting is, I wonder if April had been with me, just being connected to another person. Would it have been different? All, quote, sin, you see, is rooted in desire. Rooted in, in the way in which God created me. The idea that I am um, not alone. That I'm made for connection. I'm, I'm, made, I'm made to be a person in relationship. That helps me understand some of what's happening. And I, I want to highlight my own story, one verse that causes people problems, and it is verse 6. If anyone does not abide in me, he is thrown away like a branch and withers, and the branches are gathered, thrown into the fire, and burned. My experience as a human when I don't abide, when I run, when I make my own gods, when I lean into my addictions, I know how I wish that alcohol were the end of my addiction story. But when I do that, my experience feels exactly like that. I feel thrown into a fire and burned. It is, I believe, describing what happens to us, not a, a judgment by God on us, not a, boy, you really suck at abiding. The, the story won't make sense if, if God becomes irritated with non-abiders. Because when do you get the chance then to abide? If he's coming, hacking me off and throwing me into a fire, how does he know that not tomorrow I might start abiding? Like, they, they could have only waited one more day. I was, I was close to doing it. It, was, it doesn't make sense. But I think it's, it, the Bible is always trying to tell, the, tell a story that it's, it's having to use words to tell. And one of those is our own experience. What we existentially know. That's what I know. That non-abiding leads to death. Your addiction wants you alone, so it can kill you. We, we, we read, staying with this 
connection idea, this abiding idea that, that is in us. Jesus' language, even. As he's now trying to, to flesh out what it means, he, he's, he says to them, hey, you are my friends. You're my friends. That's, that's, that's intimate. You're, you're not my servant. You are my friends. You, you are connected to me. Hey, and and, and he, he, he describes it this way. He goes, I, a friend is someone who would give their life for their friend. You and I, given that scenario, greater love has no one than this and one who lays down their life for their friend, all you and I can do is give what's left of our life, right? So if, if Peter were drowning and I jumped in to save Peter, and in that process, I, I died. What I've given is not my life. I've just given what was left of my life. But, but Jesus, you see, it's a different story because he has all of eternity. Jesus is not, outside of his will, facing a mortal end. But Jesus willfully gives a mortal end, which means he's given all of his life. He's given everything for us. Again, he's just trying to describe the intimacy of abiding. And I think all he's saying is, don't run away from me. If I could capture some of what the Bible says about chasing after idols, about how we manage our, our life, in some ways I would summarize it this way, don't run away from me. Abide, be still, stop ex expending energy to manage your anxiety about being alone. I am here. Fear not, I am with you. Those stories are the ones that we connect. Just a little side note as it relates again to this abiding and this idea of the anti-effort. What does it require for you to be friends with your best friend? What do you have to do? Is there a list of things that you must accomplish? I'm not talking in every relationship. Relationships can be complicated. I was thinking about this with my two friends that I am most intimate with. And nothing. Nothing. There's nothing I can do or I can not do. It's a weird thing. We're just friends. Um, I, I, I want to on this same vein as I'm trying to rethink and, and I, I'm trying to help what Jesus I know intended as good news to sound like good news, I have to confront, I have to confront what is a difficult passage. Because within this, there are places that are hard. This passage I, puzzles me. He repeats it a couple places. I've, I've described it as sort of an embarrassment to the Christian faith. 
It's found in verse 7. It's found in a couple other places in the Gospels too. If you abide in me and my words abide in you, ask whatever you wish and it will be done for you. I just have the sense that all of us are a little embarrassed by that. If not, that would be every street preacher's sign. I mean, this would be the way in which we were going to motivate, it seems to me, people to come to Christ. I mean, what better sales pitch can you have? Ask whatever you want, you're going to get it if you come to Jesus. Like, I mean, he's, I'm just quoting him. I, I can say that in all the awkward, weird moments I've shared my faith, I've never once thrown that in. And by the way, you get whatever you want. Like, I have spent so much energy explaining why this passage isn't true. Like, isn't that a weird, like, like that's my effort, is why this can't be actually true. Jesus says it again down here at the bottom. And he, he says, well, bottom, because that's how I'm reading it. Um, you didn't choose me, but I chose you and appointed you that you should go and bear fruit and your fruit should abide. And so that whatever you ask the Father in my name, he may give it to you. Okay, so here's how I've explained this passage, and perhaps you're familiar with some of these. If you can guess exactly what is on Jesus' mind and what Jesus already wants, if you can guess that in a prayer, then you'll get it. Like, Jesus isn't going to tell you, but if you guess, you can get it. So we're just hoping Jesus wants me to get a new Subaru, right? Okay. If you can get the formula right, right? Like, I don't know if early in your Christian experience you had any anxiety like I did about forgetting to say in Jesus' name. Like, if you forgot that, you just wasted all that time talking to God. <laughs> like it's like a microphone that the clicker doesn't work unless you get the in Jesus name. And that would be one of the reasons. All right. Here's why I like this. I think underneath every prayer, underneath every request is this deep desire. I don't think it means that Jesus is going to give you a new Subaru. But why would I want a new Subaru? Why, why do I want things or, or, or people? Well, why is it that I want that? It's because of my anxiety. It's because of my loneliness. You see, I think addiction and prayer are rooted in the same core. That deep in who I am is this need to belong and be loved, to abide. Jesus. Will you take care of me? Yes. Yes. Always, always, yes. 
Jesus, will you take care of me? Yes. Jesus, will you stay with me? Always, always, yes. The last. I haven't read this verse, and we're not going to put it up on the screen. I'm going to edit it down to just the first sentence that occurs in this passage. I omitted it in the first reading, but I want to, um, I want to read it now. It's verse 18 of John 15, and it says this. If the world hates you, know that it has hated me before it hated you. Here's a little film clip about the world hating us. Okay, everybody up. Miss Norbury had us write out apologies to people that we'd hurt in our lives. Alyssa, I'm sorry I called you a gap-toothed bitch. It's not your fault you're so gap-toothed. Gretchen, I'm sorry I laughed at you that time you got diarrhea at Barnes and Noble. And I'm sorry I told everyone about it. And I'm sorry for repeating it now. Laura, I don't hate you because you're fat. You're fat because I hate you. I just wish we could all get along like we used to in middle school. I wish that I could bake a cake made out of rainbows and smiles and we'd all eat be happy. She doesn't even go here. Do you even go to this school? No. I just have a lot of feelings. Okay, go home. I think you're doing a great job. Thanks, I feel like I'm getting through. I'm sorry that people are so jealous of me, but I can't help it that I'm popular. Oh my gosh, okay, walk it off, walk it off. Okay. Early in my uh, Christian experience, I was, um, I came to faith in Christ in the context of a fundamentalist sort of faith. I remember in, in youth group, we, we sort of had this saying, we're not judgmental of people, we're just fruit inspectors. As I think back to why the world hated me, it was because I was a jerk. It was because I loved pointing out how much God was upset with them. I loved, I loved this identity that I had, a very small, small youth group. There was about five of us. But we were God's favorites. And we... We had it right, and everybody else had it wrong. And to point that out and to feel their wrath was just a badge of honor. I, I will say that this verse troubles me. 
Because my experience is that in reality, the, the works of Jesus, I don't think have ever caused somebody to be unloved. I haven't seen somebody feeding and clothing, taking care of, sort of doing the kinds of things that love often um, does for people. I haven't seen somebody go, stop that. That's, you awful Christians loving people like that. You miserable wretches. Here's where I'll, I'll own my, uh, my question, and I could be wrong. But I do think it is something about the exclusivity of the vine. I think there is something that leaves no options. There is something about Jesus' words, not only here but throughout, that are in, in, in such tender, compassionate words, but are the invitation to him and him alone. I, I, I think there is a, um, a, a part of our story has been that we're in and our specialness is described by who's out. We know that we are special because we can see who isn't in. That's not the story of the scriptures. The, the, the scandal of the gospel is everyone gets to hear the whisper of God, you're my favorite. That's the scandal. We don't want to share that. Uh, we're willing to let a few people who look like us or think like us or believe like us, we're willing to maybe share with just us that we get to hear the whisper of God that you are my favorite, you are my beloved. But the fact that he would offer that to a Judas, we don't like to bring that up. I think the part of what, what the world is hating is we're saying, Jesus is where you can find that whisper of you belong and you are loved. There's maybe more to it, but there is something that is disturbing about our story. And that is that Jesus, as he has been for three years preparing his friends for the culmination of his demonstration of love, he, he says that unless you eat my body and drink my blood, it isn't a, uh, a threat. It's always an invitation. Remember that the world is, is really not, in the Bible, described as individual people. It is systems. Systems that will hate this. You see, systems are going to hate that there's nothing you can do. There's nothing you can do. It's the anti-do. It is the receiving of the body and blood of Jesus. It is Letting him save you. It is so hard. 
I, I believe this with all my heart, that if we could outline for people three simple steps to get God to like you, and we can make up any three we wanted. If you, if you skip down Colfax without a shirt, and if you give away half of all that you have, and, and if you never again drink Coke product, it doesn't matter which things you make up. If you would just make up three things and tell people if you will only do these, then God will intimately invade your life. If you will do those things, we would have millions of followers. But our, our gate is so small because it's, it's so offensive when we say there is nothing you can do all you can do is stop doing, stop resisting. Let the, let the bread and the wine come into you. That's our faith. So we recreate and have a new experience each week when Jesus makes himself new to us in a, in a new and unique way, but always with the same sort of story. I love you, and you're my friend. You're my favorite. As Jesus was inviting them to abide, he said these words, that my joy may be in you and your joy may be full. May that be our experience this week. Amen.